Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. They'll buy your gun, they'll buy your gun, 300 Nazis, they'll buy your gun. Hello, and welcome to yet another lovely episode of The Lions Led by Donkeys. I am Joe, and with me still is Liam. Hello, Liam. Fuck you, man. (laughs) Ah. Uh, Back to back, baby. A little hint behind the scenes here of how we do things on the donk cast. uh, The donk. The the donk (laughs) cast. Uh, is is generally I have like three or four weeks of episodes recorded. That was not one of those times. That was not one of those times. It got away from me, the research and school and, and everything, and you know, life happens. So we we've locked ourselves in this digital room to record for two hours in a stretch today, which isn't terrible. It's really from my experience, after like three hours is when you start getting a little delirious. Uh, we did one time on Well There's Your Problem, uh Back-to-back three-hour episodes. Oh, no way. Yeah, we did Bhopal, which is, uh, putting it mildly, a real downer. And then we did the college bonus episode. I forget which one came first and which one came second. By the end, you could hear the delirium. (laughs) I I think the longest recording session that we've ever done is during our Khmer Rouge series. We recorded for three hours in one sitting and then two hours uh, to finish the series. That's the saddest I think I've ever made, Nick. I'm going to have to break that record at some point. Thank you. Um, Now, we're going to talk about someone who is a hero today. We're not talking about a bad person. Well, bad if you're a Nazi. But if you're a Nazi, I don't care. Yeah, you get what you get. If you were to like name a person who might be one of the most deadly snipers to ever walk the earth. Who would you picture in your head? Chris Kyle, of course. Yeah, pretty much. Like, is it, we're both American. Um, and I we would think, not pick Chris Kyle. I would pick that Finn from the Finno-Russian War. Uh, yeah, I mean, you'd be right. But like, normally the American-centric mind is going to jump to Chris Kyle, who killed around 160 people. Um, it's not entirely known. Or maybe someone who is less of a terrible human being, like Carlos the White Feather Hathcock, who killed maybe 93 both of these people have been held up in military legend for a long time. At the same time here in the U.S., shitty dudes have been arguing whether or not women should be allowed to have these jobs in the U.S. military or special forces, uh, whether they earn a fancy hat or a fancy tab to go on their uniform. <laughs> and they insist that standards are being lowered and our fighting capacity is being lowered because women do job. And they'll just bleed all over the sniper rifle, Joe. I really wish that like I, I could express this opinion enough. Uh, obviously, I'm, we're not in favor of war on this show, but we are in favor of you know equality uh, <laughs> and mining military 
history for laughs. Yeah, if if someone wants to do a job and they can meet the standards, they should hey, be man, able to do better those standards. Yeah, I mean exactly. And you know there is a certain level of toxic masculinity to it when it's like you you wound these little men by allowing women into their special boys club. And that's pretty right. much what it boils down to. It's no serious no, complaints. Yeah, exactly. these, these complaints should be rejected out of hand. And now that the argument is legally done, like legally, there's no argument to be had there anymore. It's gone. It's over, at least in the US. Uh, though you can't say much for decrepit culture that is built upon misogyny and discrimination that will continue until the sun finally burns out. Um, now, that is why I've chosen today to talk about one of the deadliest people to ever walk the earth. She killed over 300 people and making them one of the most effective snipers to ever exist. Now, numbers are are flimsy on some people, so it's hard to say who exactly is. Probably Simi Ohaya of Finland. We're talking about Ludmia Pavlichenko, who is, without a doubt, one of the most dangerous people to ever walk the earth while armed with a rifle. And she started her life as a young Ukrainian woman born in 1916 in a small village outside of Kiev. She was born just before the heat death of the Russian Empire. And uh, her, her father worked in a factory in St. Petersburg and, and pretty much had to leave her family without a father uh, so he could send money back home. And her, and her mom was a school teacher, which didn't pay much shit, which is unfortunately something that continues to this day. They do hate teachers. Yeah, yeah they, hate te- they hate teachers. Yeah, yeah. Now, she was apparently a handful as a child, uh, constantly getting into trouble in the classroom, and by her own account, was a bit of a tomboy and would get in fistfights with the boys whenever they challenged her that she couldn't do something simply because she was a girl. Bless up, dude. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She also learned how to shoot. Now, in the Soviet Union, there is a lot of youth organizations and youth activities uh, one of them was called the Volunteer Society for Cooperation with the Army, Aviation, and Navy, which the yeah, Russian uh, acronym they, was. They, they love this name. They love names, man. I know that sounds stupid. Just everyone is like 30 words long. Soviet naming conventions are some of my favorite. The acronym in Russian was DUSAF, um, billing itself as a paramilitary sports organization. Oh, so the Boy Scouts, but with actual guns. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, good for that, man. Except an actual part of the government, because like, the Boy Scouts, I guess, are a nonprofit. Now, the sports that were taught were directly representative within the Red Army. Like, you weren't learning basketball here. You were learning shooting, horse riding, driving, flying, and things of that nature, which is incredible when you think about, like, teaching children how to fly. Yeah. <laughs> Let's push about or what? Like, all right, good yeah. luck to you. <laughs> uh, quite like the baby birds of learning how to fly planes. Now... Unlike the military, you could join as early as 14. Uh, and while technically this was a voluntary thing, in reality, it really wasn't. Um, for instance, signing up for after school activities by your parents, like that's voluntary. But uh, right. you know, it, it, this is as if you were parents with the government. And I don't mean that as like a big brother comparison by any means. I just mean that, you know, there was another youth organization called the All Union Leninist Young Communist League. Jesus Solid name. <laughs> Uh, which, generally speaking, you had to be a member in good order and payment, because you did have to pay dues, uh, in order to attend forms of higher education if you wanted to go to the good schools. Um, sure. Now, in order to be a member of that organization, you also had to be a member of DUSAF. So, like, wink, wink, it's voluntary. Sure. You kind of point out, it's kind of like a much cooler version of the Boy Scouts. I was a Boy Scout for all of, like, I don't know, 
three months. And if I got to shoot stuff and like ride horses, I'd probably would have stayed. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. Now, at first, Ludmia did not give a single solitary fuck about any of this. She spent way too much time, in her own words, being unruly in class and not paying attention, um, getting in fights, things of that nature. She didn't give a shit about shooting. Uh, that was until her neighbor, a young boy, bragged about how he was the best shot in class. And when she said that she could beat him in shooting because she beats him in everything else, he laughed at her because shooting was not a girl's place to be. According to this boy, girls shouldn't be using guns. And the crazy thing was they found his severed head in a box the next morning. <laughs> I got this new shirt made out of my enemy's skin. Feel the fabric. <laughs> it's it's real Russian. Now, at this point, she started paying attention in class out of spite. She balanced this with like with after school practice and regular school, as well as picking up a job at the local munitions factory as a metal grinder at the ripe age of 14. <laughs> oh, bless. This 14-year-old has more work ethic than I've had in my entire life. Hell yeah, buddy. I hear that. Fueled by spite and what seems like absolutely no sleep whatsoever, she won the Vroshirloff sharpshooter title, as well as a marksman certificate certifying her to be a fucking sniper. <laughs> this uh, is while well, she's still in age? school. Okay. okay, so school age. All right. Nah, 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 I can work with that. This is between the ages of 14 and 15. Jesus Christ. We know this because at 16, she got married. Oh. At 16, she married a local doctor. And as gross as this sounds, and it is, it was pretty normal for the time. And there's no law against it. Though, shout out for the teenage factory worker for backing herself a doctor, I guess. Yeah. <sighs> now, they soon had a son who they named Rostitslav. Rolls off the tongue. Call him <laughs> Ross. But they divorced pretty soon after. Um, now, there's uh, some argument as to why exactly this happened. As you can imagine, there's a lot of facts that, uh, let's say, slip through the cracks when it comes to the real lived life of a hero of the Soviet Union. I can't believe the Soviet Union would do this. Yeah, her biography is pretty sanitized. Uh, yeah. For instance, one of the main sources I've used for this was her own biography called Lady Death. Heck of a name. Goddamn. Yeah, it's solid. Uh, and like, it's not a great source of history. For instance, when talking about the beginning of World War II, and the maps that are in it, it completely omits the Soviets splitting Poland with the Nazis. Yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, also, like, it's not a book I actually believe was written by her, uh, to be straight up. Like, I, I think it was written by a PR agent uh, of some kind and then translated. Molotov Ribbentrop Pact is real, whether you want it to be or not, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, like, to be fair, she may have not even known about it in, in real life, but, like, this book was definitely not written by her. She may have been consulted on it, uh, but that's probably it. Now, from what I can find in other sources, uh, because her own biography does not mention this, the doctor was an abusive asshole. Oh, terrific. Of course. I mean, any dude who's comfortable having sex as a grown adult with a 16-year-old and being abusive, I can say that's shocking to me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Don't fuck kids, man. The nature of the relationship was abusive. Somehow this comes up a lot on the show, and I, I implore you again to not fuck literal children. Yeah, it would be great if people could stop doing that. Now, it seems like he was abusive, but also he wanted her to effectively stay bare, barefoot and pregnant and stay in the home. Right. Uh, which she was absolutely not about. Uh, she would not be a, a, like a housewife who would pump kids out. 
does not seem her style now. No, uh, like nothing in her life made it seem like this was the kind of lifestyle she'd be comfortable with. So she dumped his ass, took the kid with her and uh, moved back in with her parents for a short time. Nice. Now, during this time in her life, fresh from a marriage and trying to figure out what exactly she wanted to do next, she worked her day jobs at the factory while finishing school at a nearby night school, while also doing household chores for her parents and nearby neighbors. Wow. Yeah, she, she stays busy. After a few years in 1937, she enrolled in Kiev University and studied history, eventually wanting to become a teacher. She's like, I don't know, a way cooler version of me. <laughs> yeah. Joe, every version of you is a way cooler version of you. That's true. Yep. Not that I can relate, of course, being <laughs> the cool guy. Literally, I am the worst version of me that could exist. I feel that. <laughs> Ever since like her little shit of a, of, of a shooting school classmate had teased her, she always made sure to always compete against uh, the guys that she was in school with to be the best at everything she could possibly be. Because even though equality was on the books, in the Soviet Union, equality was not the reality. She was still judged harshly for simply being a woman. Right. For instance, while she was at the nearby shooting school where she practiced three times a week for three hours a day, she also joined the track team as a sprinter and a pole vaulter, and she was one of the best ones there as well. That's too many things, though, man. Yeah. Are we addressing the, the, the that's too many things? Uh, I don't. I, I think she's uh, just wants to not be at home. Uh, you know, and pregnant. Understandable. Yeah. The club was all men other than herself, and it was made to prepare people specifically for the military. There was no like sport shooting in this anymore. They were teaching them how to actually be snipers, how to use camouflage, things of that nature. Right. It dedicated 20 hours a week to political classes and 14 hours a week to parade ground drill practices, which are you know, very important for a future sniper. <laughs> never know when you're going to need them. Yeah, you never know when you have to stand around and look pretty. Uh, There's also 20 hours of hand-to-hand fighting, which she did end up using. (laughs) Now, her instructor for school is a guy she simply knows as Papatov. But uh, she praises him, of course, for treating her the same as men, Uh, which eventually her being in the class did attract more women. And he he always made sure to treat them all the same. Now, the men in the class did not. Um, this is something that's very, very common throughout her entire career, unfortunately, in both the USSR and later on the US, which we'll talk about. Now, this school, like I said, taught them how to be snipers, not to be sharpshooters. Yeah. Can you clarify the difference? Now, like they were no longer just shooting at the range. Um, they were learning how to stalk targets. They were learning how to hide. They're learning how to cover the sounds of their gun. This was legitimately a student-to-sniper pipeline. <laughs> and honestly, sounds way cooler than my undergrad program for history. Like, <laughs> Michigan State needs to step its ass up. Now, if you notice the date, you know it's coming. Uh, the Germans invaded the Soviet Union during Operation Barbarossa on June 22nd, 1941. And now Ludmia was 24 years old. She had graduated with great grades and she had just taken a job as a research assistant at the Odessa Public Library where she was researching her PhD. What an idiot. Going for your PhD. I know. What a fucking... Who would do that? Sucker. Absolute sucker. Now, when the invasion started, they put out a conscription call for all men born between 1905 and 1918. Now, she had been born in 1916, and she figured this should apply to her as well uh, in, in the concepts of Soviet equality. Right. So she dropped everything she was doing and reported to the conscription office. There was, however, a slight problem, as you can imagine. 
Is it institutionalized sexism? That's right. Oh, I got it. What do I win? Thank you. you. Now, she showed up to the recruitment office. And like I said, there was equality on the books, but not equality in real life. This went through uh, school placement, through work placement, and the military. uh, Because as a lot of people read into Soviet military history during World War II, it immediately comes to the fact that they were one of the only nations to allow women in frontline combat. Right. And that is true. However, it, uh, the women that did get there had to really want to get there. Right. I, I have to point out, legally, this is not the case. Uh, according to Soviet uh, military law, men and women were the exact same. That is the law. However, that did not mean there were extra legal methods in use to talk women out of exercising those rights. One thing they would do is make women pass extensive medical checkups, something most men would just skip. Right. Uh, this is assuming they pass a quick once over by the recruiter's eyes. Now, um, though, in a few famous cases, not even those were barriers for service. Like famously, there was a, a fighter pilot that had no legs. Uh, oh, he was okay. one of the him. best fighter pilots in the Soviet Union. Yeah, we'll talk about him at some point. Now, in other cases, they would drag a woman's application for frontline service, whether it be as a sniper or infantry or tank crewman, whatever, through layers upon layers of red tape until they finally just gave up. Uh, now, most of the time, what would happen is while these women were trying to go do frontline service and they were just constantly hampered by bullshit, uh, the whole time recruiters were like, you could just become a nurse. You could just go work for the medical corps. And eventually they would just give up and, and become a nurse. Sure. Now, a famous inst- instances of this is Maureen Raskova, who was a, a woman so famous in the USSR by the time the war started, she was called Russian Amelia Earhart. Not because oh, wow. she disappeared, for the good reasons. <laughs> she was the first woman navigator in the entire Soviet Union, and it was an instructor at the Air Academy and the Air Force for men and women. She set long-distance records for various different kinds of planes and still found her request to become a fighter or bomber pilot during the war rejected. That's stupid. Yeah, this was in, until she called in a little personal favor from a connection that she had with a guy named Joseph Stalin, who eventually oh, that, approved it himself. That, that will do it. Yep. Yeah, that, that'll cut right through the red tape of, of, of military bureaucracy. Now, of course, she would end up commanding the legendary Night Witches, yep. uh, which, of course, we will talk about at some point. My friend did an audio play about the Night Witches. Yeah, they're incredible. Yeah, they're fucking sick, dude. With the, just like ratty-ass bombers, too. Yeah, like made out of plywood. Uh, now, that is, like I said, someone who was famous throughout the entire USSR had to pull connections with Joseph fucking Stalin to get frontline duty. So Ludmia, who is a nobody, ran into those problems too. She repeatedly tried to enlist as a sniper, which remember, she literally had certifications saying she was certified sniper. She had it on paper. Like she showed her multiple awards for marksmanship to anybody who would pay her enough attention. Instead, they just kept pressuring her to be a nurse, despite the fact she had no medical training at all, and all of her training was how to shoot things with a gun. Right. Now, she said in her book, she chalks this up to the fact that she showed up to the recruitment office dressed up because the men had done the same thing. The men would dress up in their best clothes to present themselves for military service. So she did the same thing, which included like wearing a dress, getting her hair done, and wearing makeup. Right. This was like considered um, 
shocking, I guess, to the recruiters. Uh, but again, this is like this is a cop out. She won every award she could win for at possible for shooting at this point. Right. Um, they had literal evidence. It was just misogyny. That's what it was. It always is, Joe. Now, at this point, she finally got a recruiter that would take time out of their day to talk to her. But they looked up in the local registry where it said that she had been married. And because they hadn't officially got a divorce. Oh, come on, dude. He said that he wouldn't let her enlist that the written permission of her husband, who they had not spoken to in three years. Eventually, she was able to wear them down into a verbal agreement. And she said, trust me, he'll have no objection whatsoever. Uh, because, you know, I don't even know where he lives anymore. <laughs> also, I have this convenient severed head in a box. <laughs> yes. Uh, I have these pile of sniper certificates, but let me get a permission slip from my husband. And this seemed to finally be good enough. And she was shoved into a train with hundreds of others and sent off to the 25th Chepayev Rifle Division. Now, she notes that she was given a brand new uniform, uh, which fit, uh, and but boots that were two sizes too big. Forcing her, uh, and we've talked about foot wraps before on this show, right? Oh, so, yep. uh, this forced her to actually wear her boots barefoot um, and shove all of her foot wraps at the toe of her boot to cover up the uh, the, the spacing problem and, and because her boots were so big. Now, for people who maybe missed us talking about the foot wraps, the thing is, so the Soviet military, this and this also branches into the Russian Federation military all the way up until the 2000s, did not issue you socks. Um, uh, they issued a foot wrap, which was essentially a rag that you wrapped around your feet in a very specific way that had been in use since about the dawn of professional armies yeah. in Europe. Uh, like one of the jokes um, that like I've seen by, from like Soviet conscripts for people that like question if you were conscripted was uh, like you took off your shoes and showed how scarred up your feet were from the foot wraps. Oh, yeah, that is what they call Narnar. <sighs> now, as soon as she got to her platoon, they tried to shove her off into the medical unit because, of course, right? Right. This uh, erupted into an argument that she eventually won and then found out something very shitty. She would not be going out to the front immediately. In fact, her entire unit would not be going out to the field immediately, despite her endless pleading, because they didn't have any guns to issue her. Now, we talked about the shortage of weapons in the beginning of this war before, and the Red Army, and how, in reality, it did not just send conscripts running into battle without guns like you saw an enemy at the gates. That's not something that occurred on a widespread basis right. very few times. Instead, they held huge masses of soldiers in reserves and waited for supplies to come in, either from the factories or more likely the massive American Lens Lease program. Because, and I cannot express this enough, how, how many supplies or how much supplies that the United States shipped into the Soviet uh, Union. It was a fuckload. Yep. Now, since she didn't have a gun yet, uh, she did what a lot of people had to do during this time, and she stuck a literal ditch-digging duty while stationed in Bessarabia. Oh, damn. At this point, they armed these poor bastards who didn't have a gun with a hand grenade, which she was instructed to, like, if while digging, uh, you know, the, the Germans showed up, she needed to throw the grenade and run, um, should the time arise. So, that's slightly better than waiting for the person next to you to die and grab the rifle, right? I guess. Yeah, I mean, low bar, I suppose. <laughs> However, the Axis forces would, would eventually break through and overwhelm them, leading to Lumia's unit beginning their retreat slowly towards Odessa before she was ever issued a gun. 
by the second half of July, she finally did found a rifle and it did end up playing very much like the scene from Enemy at the Gates. While they were marching, they came under artillery fire, which killed a guy next to her and she grabbed his rifle when he dropped it. So, yeah. Now, she did take part in her first bit of combat very shortly thereafter when a German-Romanian allied unit attacked and she fended them off. Uh, Though, she doesn't really write much about what she felt about it. It was more of like the blindly shooting into the distance type situation. Now, eventually she found herself in the city of Odessa as German and Romanian units closed in around her for a siege, though the town had prepared, digging massive amounts of fortifications, reinforcing many of them along the way. Now, strangely enough, in her own biography, she doesn't actually write much about her own individual actions, uh, Mm. but she writes from other people about other people's actions and from the other people's accounts. What? Yeah, it's really weird. It's like every time it, it, the the book swings that you think to talk about her own actions because this is a book called Lady Death, written supposedly by a literal by hero the, of the Soviet by the Union. The lady, yes, yeah, uh, about how she became known as Lady Death. Like you, you would expect her to write at length about. All these things, but like every time this happens, she instead launched into a story about a different person. Weird. Which very much leads me to believe that she did not write this. Okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. It's a very purposeful attempt to not make this about her, despite the fact it's a biography, right? <laughs> which, and to glorify the Soviet war effort or whatever. Yeah, right. To glorify the 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 group rather than the than the individual, which I I understand. Um, sure, but um, we do know from other people's accounts. That this is where she got her first two kills for sure, dropping two German scouts within seconds of one another. After this, she hunted through the countryside for a few weeks, killing on average more than 10 people per day. Fuck. Yeah. Just like Um, roving? Yeah, she would um, set up with other snipers um, and set up in like teams. She, She never worked alone. Snipers never work alone. Right. And the, they would shoot a couple people and relocate, shoot a couple people and relocate, shoot a couple people and, re- and just do that co- constantly sure, over and sure. over and over again all day. This is also where she got wounded for the first time with a mortar blowing up in her face and nearly killed her. Don't want that. Unfortunately, she has something of a history with head injuries throughout her life. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> now, she was parked in a hospital for a few weeks uh, and what she called, quote, severe shell shock. But... What was almost certainly a really bad concussion uh, because she doesn't remember the immediate aftermath of the mortar landing next to her. So she was knocked unconscious for a pretty long period of time. Right. Um, This is what's known in the business as traumatic brain injury. It'll get you folks. Yeah. No such thing as a, as a dinger as they, as they would say back in, in football practice. After this, she was sent back to Odessa, which had since then had just been blown to hell from the, the, the constant fighting since she had been gone. Uh, she also found out that she had promoted. She had been promoted to corporal, which uh, is about the same time. At this point, it's thought of she already killed a hundred people. Holy shit, dude! Yeah, <laughs> for her, yeah, for right? Her. I mean, ten people per day it wouldn't take very long to rack those numbers up. Um, now, this promotion also came with a punishment. In my opinion, she would now have to teach people how to be snipers. Not just any snipers, not just like people like her who would come out of like the the Red Army program, but random naval personnel. Why? Uh, Around 100 seamen from uh, Sevastopol had volunteered to serve 
on the front lines in Odessa, despite never firing a gun or even getting a change of uniform. She noted that they are still wearing what she called, quote, black bell-bottom pants and blue and white shirts. Her first lesson was to talk them into wearing helmets and boots because they were the, uh, the, the Russian naval uniform didn't have boots. It had like dress shoes. Right. Now, on their first night out after her training unit, as a group, mind you, this isn't just her. They killed nearly 100 men. God, God damn. This has to do with, like, obviously the, uh, the skill of this unit, but also just the brutality of the Eastern Front. Like, 100 people being killed in a day, drop in a bucket. Like, it, it's, it's sure. hard to understand the scope of the killing on the Eastern Front. Other than a lot of it. Other than it's a, an apocalyptic amount of death, um, like even without the Western Front, even without the Pacific Theater, even without the African Theater, the Eastern Front of World War II would have been uh, on its own in a vacuum, one of the most deadly conflicts in human history. Uh, and it's like, it's hard to like, we're eventually going to do, uh, we have a series planned for Kursk in the future, just the Battle of Kursk. And you're welcome. That was my idea. The amount of death and destruction in this one campaign is otherworldly, honestly. Um, like when we start covering things like uh, Stalingrad and other and other stuff like like it, like I said, it's it's hard to contemplate the amount of of, of people, machines, and and just brutality. So like, yes, a hundred people being killed by a single unit in a day is crazy to think about with like our modern and Western uh, ideas and sure. stuff, but like. We're talking thousands, hundreds, like of we're done every day, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really hard to understand. But also, the next day she killed ten people herself. <laughs> Good for her, man. Girl, <laughs> you go, girl. It's like shooting Nazis in a barrel over here. Uh, now, leaving the camp in the early hours of the morning, returning only at night, she head out to advance positions close to the enemy and lay motionless for hours, waiting for an opportunity to shoot. Now. Just so you understand what I mean by for hours, sometimes she would wait unmoving for 15 hours without I doing could not do that. That right there excuse me. Yeah, 100%. I wouldn't be able to do that either. And another point in this, she did catch a really big shiny piece of shrapnel directly to her forehead. That sounds like a theme here. Yeah. Uh, that is one of three head injuries that she would have for her very short service life. Yeah. Now, Eventually, and unfortunately, it wouldn't matter how many Nazis she would kill, or Romanians for that matter, who are also Nazis, uh, because they outnumbered the Soviets in the area five to one, leading to them slowly but surely losing Odessa and her unit being evacuated to Sevastopol. Now, by the time Ludmia had left the Odessa front, she had killed at least 187 men Fuck. In, in just two and a half months. This means in two and a half months of service, this woman is more deadly than any American sniper who's ever lived. And then she was promoted to senior sergeant. So that's cool <laughs> for her troubles for murdering over a company of Germans on her own. She got a, she got two promotions. Yeah. Now, it was at this point in Sevastopol, she truly hit her stride and she took on another job, counter sniping or hunting other snipers for sport. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as we were talking about her, it goes without saying she never lost one of her duels with Nazi snipers. She, as far as she knew, was hunted by 36 different Nazi snipers, and she killed all of them. Jesus fuck, dude. I hate to keep coming back to Enemy of Gates because that movie's terrible, but that, that movie really does make like counter sniping seem a lot more exciting 
Oh, I assume it's just laying in the dirt, motionless, hoping you see Glint, basically. Yes. Now, effectively, what this came down to is that the snipers would kind of know where each other are. Sure. They would know where each other's hiding spots are. They would know the positions that they would prefer. Like favor, yeah. They would stalk out these these areas. And you would know that the sniper is around there, but you don't want to shoot because it'd give your position, position away. And then right. the sniper would immediately shoot you. So it would be a staring contest where you would just lay there unmoving, waiting for the other person to blink. And when they did, you shot them. At one point, she waited in a single spot for three days before her target finally moved and she killed them. That's too much time, man. Just three what days. What do you even do? You can't eat. You can't drink. Shit and piss on yourself. Because if you move, you die. I already do, Joe. <laughs> just laying, laying in a fighting position that is just an absolute mess. Because like you move even a hair. You breathe wrong. You're dead. Right. She won all of those. And, you know, 36 and 0, baby. <laughs> Phrase, I believe, is cuckoo bananas. Now, there could have been a, a chance where she was stalked by more snipers that simply never actually saw her. And then she also never saw. That's also possible. Sure. But, yeah, 36 came. None went home. <laughs> now, Ludmia got to Sevastopol in October of 1941. And by the May of the next year, the War Council of the Southern Red Army noted that she had killed 257 enemy. Of which she, of course, said, quote, I'll get more and then got promoted again. Now to lieutenant Good for her. There's unfortunately one part of her story that's become quite popular. I pretty much have to disprove. And that is during this time in Sevastopol, she started dating and married a fellow sniper, Alexei Kitsinko, a fellow Ukrainian. Unfortunately, you, Alexei would then die shortly after the marriage. And as the story goes, she was so heartbroken and lovelorn, she never again remarried. There is a chance this probably never happened. The reason for this is Ludmia herself never men- mentions him by name in the book at all. Even if this was written by some kind of political minder, PR person with her consulting, it would make no sense for this to be left out uh, because right. th- this looks good for the USSR, right? Like their warriors married and then she was driven by the death of her lover to kill even more Nazis. But right. th- it's never brought up. He's never mentioned my name in the book. It's never noted that she married anyone other than the doctor in her own biography. So, Which does not look good. No, it, it almost certainly didn't happen. Uh, we do know she did get married again in 1945 to a guy named Konstantin Shitleyov, uh, which is the literal only fact I can find about him. Hmm. Um, and then he died a little bit after that as well. But did she have his severed head to bag tail? No, uh, it, it seemed that uh, they were just like I don't know. They they led a pretty rough life after the war. Well, that's a shame. Yeah, uh, but like, yeah, the, the the story about Alexei Kitsenko probably did not happen. Uh, I won't say didn't. It, right. All signs point to no. Sorry, folks. The sniper love affair is a cool story, though. And like, uh, honestly, that is what when I back in the day uh, when we did the uh, enemy at the gates bonus episode, it was where they got the idea to include the love triangle. Right. Which, of course, Vasily Zaitsev. Didn't, that never happened with him either. Uh, so, you know, Although, it is the movie with the greatest sex scene of any movie. <sighs> I refuse to acknowledge it sex scene ever again. Now, by this point, 
Ludmia was a legend, and not just within the Red Army, but a Nazi legend as well. In her book, she notes, quote, By that time, even the Germans knew of me. They attempted to bribe her, blurring messages over the loudspeaker that said, quote, <laughs> Ludmia Pavlichenko, come over to us. We will give you plenty of chocolate and make you a German officer. <laughs> <laughs> After we shot your friends, you know. Yeah, yeah. And which, like, absolutely, this had just been like, she'd walk into a firing squad, right? After her legend grew further, their messages of promises of chocolate, and I assume foot rubs, would turn to threads. <laughs> they had heard that her famous 309 kills at this point, because, the, the, of course, the Soviets used her for propaganda because she had killed so many people. Of course, and they to did. be fair, they, the Nazis keep dropping dead. Yeah, and they they knew when she was out hunting. Like they had, like if you look at pictures from say Stalingrad, leaving bloody foot rubs next to her kills, <laughs> like <laughs> foot foot wraps. She didn't um, fight in Stalingrad, but like they they're aware of who snipers are. Like every every sniper um, who's existed gets their nickname given to them by their enemy, right? Like Simi Ohio was the White Death, and he was nicknamed that by the Soviets. Mm-hmm. The White Feather in Vietnam. Uh, was nicknamed White Feather by the North Vietnamese because he wore a white feather in his helmet. Uh, things like that. So, like, they get their nicknames because people know. And uh, admittedly, there's a lot of psychological terror to this as well. Like, famously, during the Iraq War, the U.S. fell for a bit of propaganda called Juba, the Baghdad sniper. And there's a famous right. video that was cut about it. Juba didn't exist. Uh, there was no single Juba. In fact, there's like a thought to be a squad of people all operating under the same name because there's a psychological factor that like, oh, fuck, Juba's out hunting today. When in reality, right. it's like 12 odd dudes, right? Um, like people know that these things, but like that nickname worked. We, oh, it's Juba. Like it's not like fucking Steve and his nine friends. <laughs> but at this point, she was famous for her 309 kills. So the German loudspeaker screamed out, quote, if we catch you, we will tear you into 309 pieces and scatter them to the winds. Yeah, they were going to do that anyway. What does she care? Now, she thought this is fucking awesome because uh, she said, quote, they even knew my score. <laughs> <laughs> That's rad as hell. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. By the next month, she got wounded again, again, clipped in the head. Um, again, a helmet girl. It, it, they counterintuitive to sniping. Unfortunately, she she would cover uh, herself in like it more visible. I assume. Yeah, yeah. Now, like the others, this was anything too terribly serious. Uh, but she had now been wounded four times, three of which had included explosions going directly into her face. Um, so the Soviet leadership began to get a little worried that the next one might fucking kill her, which would be really bad for morale. Right. She, she was worth entirely too much both practically and propaganda wise let her brain get turned into mush and pulled her off the front lines because remember besides the fact turning into a newspaper front page story she's a great sniper instructor right by keeping her alive you can make thousands of snipers why the fuck would you waste her so uh while she recovered from her wounds she trained snipers but when she fully recovered she was pretty shocked to find out that she was invited to meet papa stalin himself now, uh, her and her, um, it was like a, like a minder, I guess, someone to, to like go with her, uh, met Stalin and she described him as, quote, swarthy. <laughs> oh. And, quote, not as tall as he appeared in paintings. 
<laughs> Take that, techies. <laughs> now, I'm laughing hysterically here only because, one, of course, like, of course, the paintings would make him look much better. But also, too, because Francis Horton, who's often on this show, calls me swirthy for being Armenian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and like, there's, you know, the most famous pictures of Stalin were touched up, like, you know, the, the picture that famously shows him as Koba, the revolutionary agent. And Mm. like, he was very self-conscious about smallpox scars on his face. That's right. So they were always edited out. But yeah, she was surprised by all of that. As I imagine anybody in an era before, uh, mass pictures of people were pretty shocked meeting a larger than life character, right? Now, Stalin informed her that she would be going to the United States to spread the word of the Soviet struggle and war. Because, remember, the U.S. isn't involved yet. Right. And they want the U.S. to open a second front of the war to take pressure off the Eastern Front. Right. This is for the obvious reasons that she was a very well-known sniper, but it was also noted in her file that she studied English in school. However... She actually didn't speak English at all. Uh, she'd forgotten all of it. Uh, yeah, and, and, and you yeah. don't use it, you lose it, man. Yeah, uh, so she would have to take a translator throughout the entire time, but that didn't stop her. Now, she traveled to the U.S., and she was treated as something of an oddity by the press. Um, now, this is the U.S. in the 40s, uh, so they were very unsure how to treat a woman who was a soldier. Not to right. mention one who was being trotted out as killing literally hundreds of people. Right. Uh, I mean, we've seen the U.S. media react badly to to anybody who has killed hundreds of people, um, framing oh. them in ways to to fluff them up and things like right. that. Um, like we we we've seen all sorts of stuff like that. So, like a woman showing up in the 1940s, being touted as killing 309 Nazis. They did that. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> She also became the first Soviet citizen to be welcomed into the White House. Um, she met with the Roosevelts, obviously F- FDR being president at the time, um, and became incredibly close and fast friends and very unlikely friends with Eleanor Roosevelt. They were literally lifetime friends after this. Wow. Yeah. Now, this is the whole point of her journey at this point go and meet the roosevelts shake some hands and fuck off back to russia right right but at dinner with eleanor roosevelt she was asked if she would like to accompany eleanor on a tour across the country which the soviets hadn't planned on but ludmia immediately agreed because this sounded like one that sounds fun but also this seems like it'd be a much better use of her clout right right now just to remind you Four months before, she was killing literally hundreds of people on the battlefields of Sevastopol. And as soon as she hit the press junket, she was being asked the most embarrassing fucking questions on Earth. I'm sure she was. She was asked if uh, if Russian women wore makeup at the front line and things like that. We'll go into some more of the gross ones later on. And she handled these questions with a lot of tact and probably a lot of help from her translator slash political officer at first. She said, quote, there's no rule against it, but who would have time to think of their shiny nose while a battle is going on? Kind of appreciate the idea of applying makeup under fire, tail. Yeah, cover <laughs> me as you're like putting rouge on. <laughs> do you think, do, oh, sir, do you think I look pretty? Yeah, and since this, this is the 1940s, all of the makeup is just lead. Yeah. Well, you're going to get an idiot one way or the other. <laughs> Got to get that mercury in there, uh, brush it all over your lip. 
Uh, now in New York, she was greeted by Mayor F- Fiorello LaGuardia. You did uh, it. No, you did it right. Is that right? Yes, you did it. Hell yeah. Eat shit, New York. I got one right. (laughs) For the first time ever on this show. Uh, And a representative of the International Fur and Leather Workers Union, uh, uh, the CIO, um, who presented her as one paper reported as, quote, a full-length raccoon coat of beautifully blended skins, which would be resplendent in an opera setting. Oh, okay. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Thanks for the raccoon jacket. Uh, I will not wear this ever. Um, <laughs> Just wear that back in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> Just walking in to meet Stalin in your full-length raccoon fur jacket. Oh, I'm so warm. I could lie anywhere for 15 hours. <laughs> the New York Times dubbed her, quote, the girl sniper. And other newspapers observed that she, quote, wore no lip rouge or makeup of any kind. And, quote, there isn't much style to her olive green uniform. You know, the one with all of her awards on it. Yeah, that's because it's okay. Now, as the translator began to read these things to her, she got more and more angry at the gathered American press. And the final breaking point was when they fat shamed her. Oh, boy. A reporter seemed to criticize the long length of her uniform skirt, implying that it made her look fat. Speaking of sever heads in a bag. <laughs> in Boston, this is about to make this 310, motherfucker. <laughs> in Boston, another reporter observed that Pavlichenko, quote, attacked her five-course New England breakfast yesterday. American food, she thinks, is okay. Now, despite this being an all-around dick move, it caused her to stop playing the press's bullshit. And you know who encouraged her to snap at the press? Oh, Eleanor yeah. Roosevelt. Oh, nice. <laughs> Yeah, she's like, tell those motherfuckers to eat shit. When a Times reporter brought up her uniform, she snapped at him saying, quote, I wear my uniform with honor. It has the order of Lenin on it. It's covered with the blood in battle. It's plain to see that with American women, what is important is what they wear their silk underwear under their uniforms. What the uniform stands for, they have yet to learn. You tell them. You tell them, girl. (laughs) Now, this is kind of the point where... uh, she figured out she could say where the fuck she wanted. Uh, and, she's a war hero. Yeah. She's the Order of Lenin. The first lady is like, yeah, get him. So like, because for, for an American woman, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt is, is quite the feminist at the time. So like, right. she's like, yeah, get him, motherfucker. Tell the motherfucker, because she can't say this stuff. She's the first lady. There's a certain civility she has to observe. So like, which is wrong, mind you. But like, right. She knows she can encourage this this Ukrainian woman to scream at everybody. Uh, so she did. Now, she went wherever she wanted, including bars and union halls, just kind of rad, uh, and, and went into stories about the front and how bad everything was as much as she was allowed to. Now, right. all of this was to tell them like how badly they needed the U.S.'s help. To jump in, right? Yeah. the other front, right, right, right. Which, of course, came the old-timey questions of how it felt to kill someone. Like, someone asked, like, what do you feel when you kill someone? Now, there's... Recoil. Yeah, there's a famous saying that uh, she like that is attributed to her that's like, I've never killed a human. I've only ever killed fascists, um, which does, un- does not, unfortunately, make it into her book. So, I think that might be kind of tacked on afterwards. It's still, me- it's still fucking metal as shit, though. That's awesome, though. Yeah. But what she did say is that the only feeling that I have is great satisfaction as a hunter that feels uh, who has killed a beast or prey. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, which is almost, They're Nazis. Yeah. She told another reporter, quote, every German who remains alive will kill women, children, and old folks. Dead Germans are harmless. Therefore, if I kill a German, I'm saving lives. <laughs> yes. No, by the time her and Eleanor had gotten to Chicago, she went from blowing off shitty questions to straight up trolling American men, which I have to say, I cherish, uh, with oh. roasting them with such classics like, quote, gentlemen, I am 25 years old and I have killed 309 fascist occupants by now. Don't you think, gentlemen, you've been hiding behind my back too long? Oh, <laughs> we're doing stuff. She also points out that how in the Red Army, there were no racial or gender segregation, openly mocked <laughs> racist American Jim Crow policies, which is kind of incredible when you remember that the first lady is standing right next to her. Also, she's wrong about the first part, but still, yeah. the second part is right. Now, um, despite all of this, she was like trolling people. She was greeted by cheering crowds of men and women everywhere she went. Um, like she did it across America roast and like women were like shaking her hand and hugging her and the men were enthralled by her. Unfortunately, a death cam comedy like war jam doesn't always work out because they would have to wait another two years for the second American second front to open up. Right. But, you know, she did what she could. Also, there's the uh, Woody Guthrie song that he wrote about her, <laughs> you know, all of I'll these things, right. which will definitely be the intro to this fucking episode. Um, now, when she got back to the USSR, she was promoted to major, given another order of Lenin, and finally bestowed upon the title of the hero of the Soviet Union. Now, the government would never allow her to return to combat, uh, no matter how many times she were requested, which was constantly. Uh, so she wrote out the rest of the war training snipers in the fine art of turning human skulls into canoes. <laughs> now, when the war ended, she left service, as most people did. Um, and she finally went back to school, defending her dissertation at Kiev University, Aww. attaining her P uh, PhD and going on to work as a historian in libraries. So, hell yeah. Now, in 1957, 15 years after Eleanor Roosevelt accompanied Lumia across the U.S., the now former first lady was touring Moscow. Uh, now, because we're unfortunately balls deep in the Cold War at this period, a Soviet minder restricted Roosevelt's agenda, and they constantly refused her request to go hang out with Lumia. Oh, big move. She kept asking and asking, and eventually Ludmia, you know, hero of the Soviet Union, was like, yo, I want to hang out with her. So the, the, the political miners are like, fine, fuck it. You can go hang out with her. Now, in front of minders, the two were very, very cool and detached and professional uh, because, you know, things were hairy politically for both of them if they, got right. to, if, they, if they let things known too close. But they had a chance to ditch away, sneaking into uh, Ludmia's kitchen to drink tea and share gossip and stories from the 15 years they had missed. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, they were truly very close oh, friends. It's kind heart. of incredible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, um, unfortunately, uh, Ludmia's life after the war is pretty rough. Uh, like most people who have murdered over 300 human beings, she suffered pretty intense PTSD. Um, right. Now, PTSD is, is now largely alienating and untreated in a lot of places but back then it was downright 
Hadn't mm-hmm. slapped, yeah, yeah. Yeah, is downright not accepted to exist. Um, a mental uh, incapacity or illness was considered a not something you wanted to be thought of in any place, uh, let alone it be the Soviet Union or the United States. Like, there's a one-stop shot for you, and that's the fucking asylum and, and no treatment. Right. Um, so she treated it like a lot of veterans treat it, and that was with alcohol. Uh, so she created a pretty pretty mean case of alcoholism, which contributed to her gotcha. death at the age of 58 in 1974. Damn. Yeah. Uh, she true. died of a stroke. Uh, but most people uh, think that she's also suffering from a pretty severe case of cirrhosis at that point, which would definitely contribute. But yeah, uh, that is the story of Ludmia Pavlichenko, the deadliest woman to ever live and troll her way across the United <laughs> States, calling American men bitches. <laughs> Good for her, man. Yeah, honestly, I wanted to do this story for a really long time. Um, and I decided it had been too long because we talked about someone who was legitimately cool and not funny to laugh at out of pure evil, uh, like you know, Baron Ungern was. But that is the story of Lumia Pavlichenko. I hope that the people who do not listen to this podcast by now, uh, that being the people who I, I, I wrote this episode to, to make fun of, see this, hear this, and realize they're giant whiny man children that need to shut the fuck up um please because now would be good yeah you're not you're not you're not suited to shine her fucking boots <laughs> Where which are your two sizes is too big uh <laughs> 300 plus kills will do that to you yeah uh now liam we Best do a job. thing on the show called questions from the legion so i've been told by my by my handlers <laughs> yeah my my political handlers are telling me we do in fact ask or answer questions from the legion um now if you'd like to ask us a question from the legion donate to the show at any level uh dm pm or email or patreon message us now today's episode we're gonna have to tread lightly or today's question we have to tread quite kind of lightly hypothetically if you were to challenge anybody to a charity fight as completely consensual and not assault. <laughs> uh, who would it be and why? Jokes. That was a well. There's your problem joke. Uh, a charity fight. Uh, I don't know, man. I think I think the obvious answer is like some politician I hate. Sure. But I don't think that's quite right because I hate them in a way that just beating them up wouldn't really like. Because I know they live at the end of it, right? Yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah, the problem. That w- we're definitely not doing a uh, a char- charity gladiatorial event. <laughs> right, right. So that's that's kind of my problem, is they have to live at the end of this. Yeah, that is a problem. Uh, so I'm going to say... The podcast does not condone the murder of politicians. No, we don't. Hey, Nate. I'm to make this. Uh, let's see here. I would probably... Like a Joe Rogan or someone like that, or some like right wing podcast host. Like I would love to fight Ben Shapiro. Although I think I would beat the shit out of him. Cause I assume I'm like a foot and a half taller than he is. I personally would not want to challenge Joe Rogan to a charity fight. Cause he would beat the fucking shit yeah, out of me. Big, he's a big dude. Uh, yeah, he, he's I'm a black belt in BJJ and a Taekwondo world champion. Um, oh, I actually didn't know that. I yeah, try, try yeah. not to know anything about Joe Rogan. He, he is as, as dumb as he is, his MMA uh, knowledge is not fake. Uh, mine would absolutely have to be steven crowder um and this is something i'm legitimately serious about yeah i would donate ten thousand dollars to charity and this is i'm not pulling this out of my ass i would do it if steven crowder would go three rounds with me in a charity fight i'd watch that to a charity of his choice and i am 
100% serious. <laughs> um, anyway, Liam, that is our episode. Everybody, thank you for joining us. Liam, you had no choice. I locked you in this room. and I, Yeah, I don't know why you always say, Liam, thanks for joining us. Like, I have a say in this. Yeah, uh, this is an at-will employer. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. I, I am recording this under duress. I am recording this under duress. I have Ludmia Pavlachenko waiting outside your door. You can get in an argument with the uh, Ukrainian Orthodox priest across the street. You know, we might be able to find common ground. We're both both Orthodox. We're, we're good. Um, you know, a- until next time, um, don't be a fucking misogynist also, prick. Also, don't be a Nazi. Also, uh, Ben Shapiro, Jew on Jew. <laughs> you and me, buddy. Later. Bye, everybody. <laughs>